We are in the middle or kind of towards the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 are some very, very good chapters in Christianity. They're a good place to study, a good place to learn. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus said this. He said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. This was probably a little disturbing to the disciples. They probably didn't fully understand it. And the reason is they didn't know anybody who was more righteous than the Pharisees. In their culture, in their day, the Pharisees were the ones that were experts in the law. They kept the law. Well, they at least kept it outwardly. They kept it in the way that they dressed, in the way they acted, tithing, praying. Outwardly, they appeared to be keeping all the parts or most of the parts of the law. It was something that they were looked up to. They were thought as the religious ones, the super spiritual ones. But the righteousness of the Pharisees, it was an outward display. It was, a, it was perhaps the greatest act anybody had ever seen. It was, let me show you how spiritual I am on the outside. And they had kind of done away with what was going, in, going on on the inside. The disciples probably thought something of the effect, well, if I have to be more righteous than them, then I guess heaven's going to be a lonely place. If they're not going to get in, then I certainly don't have a chance at getting in. There's not going to be very many people there. As we came to verses 21 through 26, Jesus went on to show us that entering the kingdom of heaven has nothing to do with what you look like on the outside. It wasn't the outwardly appearance, but it was what was going on on the inside. On the outside, you can look righteous. You can appear, appear spiritual. You can look like you're right with God. But on the inside, as the Bible says in another place, you can be full of dead men's bones. You can look spiritual. You can look like I'm the churchgoer. I'm the Christian. I'm super Christian. But inside, you're falling apart. Inside, it's miserable. On the outside, you can say and do all the right things. But inwardly, you can be rebelling against the Lord and against the ways of the Lord. Oh, in front of people on Sunday mornings? Oh, I put it on. I can look right. Everything's great in my family. Everything's great in my house. Everything's perfect. But the moment you walk out of church, it's when the fight starts in the car on the way home. Or the, you get home and it's not the same thing. You see, Jesus began to show us the law wasn't meant to just be kept externally. It wasn't just so you could look good on the outside, but it was also meant to be internally as well. It wasn't just about doing the right things, it was about thinking the right things. It wasn't just what you looked like, but what was going on inside your heart. When Jesus spoke about murder, he showed them that the law of God required more than what they thought it did. You see, they took murder and they defined it as the physical act of the taking of a life, but Jesus said, no, look at the heart that leads up to murder. Look what's going on inside of a man or a woman's heart. The law is also concerned with what's going on in the hearts of man. In the next couple of chapters, Jesus shows us and he speaks of a righteousness that's going to exceed the Pharisees. He's going to tell you how to do it. He's going to lay it out for you. He's already started as we get through chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7. He's going to show you what a righteousness looks like that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. The only problem is we're going to look at it and go, ooh. They couldn't achieve that, and I don't know that I can either. 
You see, the purpose of him showing this to us is not so that we can stop striving for it. We continue striving for it, but we realize we can't make it. When we realize we can't make it is when we turn to our Savior. Say, Lord, I need help. I want this. I try this. This is the way I want to live my life, but I can't do it without you. That's the whole purpose for it. It's possible for a Christian to look like a Pharisee. They have it all together on the outside. They're always at church. They know the Christian language, the Christianese. They're serving the Lord, but their hearts can be very far from the Lord. They're doing that of obligation rather than love for the Lord. Their hearts can be hard and in rebellion. It's no true fellowship with the Lord. It's not the place that you want to be. It would be better if you presented yourself as who you really are than trying to present yourself as somebody you're not. What do we call that? Hypocrisy. What do Christians get named for? A bunch of hypocrites. Present yourself as who we are, not who we're not, not, not who we're trying to be. Let's not, Christians shouldn't be fake, but it doesn't mean we just give up and we just let whatever happens, happens. We still strive after these things. Now let's pick up in verse 27 as Jesus continues his teaching. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. To start off with, Jesus points out, you have heard it said of old. In other words, you've heard it told this way. You've heard it said that a man shouldn't commit adultery. Yes, we all agree that. Yes, that, that's true. But then he takes it a little bit further. You shall not commit adultery. But then the question becomes, well, what does that really mean? What really is adultery? But what, what, what does that, de- give me the definition of that word. And the Pharisees and many people today, they would look and they say, well, adultery, it's having a physical affair with somebody while you're married. It's, it's, it's engaging in a relationship outside of marriage. And to this charge, some people would say, well, that's not, I've, I've never done that. I'm, I'm innocent of that. I'm not guilty there. I've never cheated on my husband or my wife. I've never done that. What if you're single? Could adultery be the cheating on your future husband or your future wife? I hadn't thought of it that way. Think of it that way. But did you catch Jesus' definition? Did you see where he went inward when they were thinking outward? They thought, here's the line. I can go this far as long as I don't do cross it. And Jesus said, no, no, no. He said, no, no, let's go inward. Whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And what's the response when somebody hears that? That's impossible. Everybody does that. That's impossible. I know, right? It happens. It's, 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 it's part of life. That's why we need a Savior. See, under the scribe's definition, under the worldly definition of it, under the outward definition, you can do a whole lot in your mind before you cross that threshold of adultery. Oh, you can go pretty far in your mind if you let your mind run, can't you? You can admire the attractiveness or the good looks of another person. You can imagine what it would be like to be married to them. You can engage in an emotional relationship. A Facebook friend, an old boyfriend, an old girlfriend. Oh, no, I'm not committing adultery. I'm just, I have to log on every day after work and see what they, how their day was. I have to have someone else tell me how valuable I am because I'm not getting it at home. You see, you can carry on an emotional relationship with somebody. You can lust after somebody. All of these things are considered adultery under Jesus' definition. If you're lusting after somebody, Jesus says it's the same thing. Why? Because adultery is just what becomes of it. It's just the outward sign of it. It's, it's, It's what it looks like when the rest of the world finally sees it. 
It's, it's not what's going on. It, it's just a picture of what's going on already inside of a person. But we've gotten good. We control what's inside. We go, no, I don't need to deal with the inside. I just, have to, just can't cross that line. All of these things usually precede an adulterous relationship. Do you know that nobody just falls or slips? Oops, I had an adulterous affair. It doesn't happen that way. It, it takes a period of time. It takes a relationship being built. It takes interaction with one person to another. It, it doesn't just happen overnight. There's, there has to be relationships, a, 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 an emotional relationship before there's a physical one. There, there has to be something there. And I must say, if you've started down this road with someone, it's time to stop because it's going to lead into an affair. It's going to go that far. As Christians, we need to protect ourselves against these types of thoughts and relationships. I don't counsel women alone. I don't meet with women alone. I, I, I don't do that. Why? Not to say that there's anything wrong there. I'm just, I don't want to put myself in a position to, for, for something to be wrong. And you need to think the same way. I won't get in a car with a woman and drive across town. Why? It's no big deal. It could be no big deal, and it might be no big deal. But what if somebody sees me? What if someone says, hey, I saw Pastor Rob driving around town with somebody in his car, some other woman in his car that wasn't his wife. What are they going to think? It could be completely innocent. But look what I've done. We must guard our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. The New Living Translation takes that exact same verse and it says this, guard your heart above all else for it, determines the count, the, for it determines the course of your life. You see, we don't just casually accept relationships as Christians. Oh, no, no, it's okay, it's fine, you don't understand, we're just friends. Be careful, don't think that you can handle that. Be careful with that. It will go further than you expect. It doesn't just end there. And I have to touch on one more thing before we move on. Pornography. Oh, don't go there, Rob. It's his church. No, I have to go there. Pornography. It's adultery. You're having an affair with the computer screen, with an image on a screen, on a picture. You're, you're, you're going somewhere besides your wife or your husband to interact, to engage in sexual gratification, and you're doing it with a picture or a computer. It's adultery. Pornography is being used by men and women at alarming rates. It's not worth it. Trust me, it's not worth it. It warps your concept of what a relationship should be. It's, it's not real life. It's all fake. They're actors and actresses. It doesn't exist that way. If you pursue these kinds of things, even as a single per person, it's going to present problems in your marriage or your future marriage. Don't think that it doesn't hurt anything. It's not a big deal. It is a big deal. It'll literally rewire the way that you think if you're not careful. And there's medical scientific information to prove that the way that your receptors react, it'll change the way you think if you continue down that road. You will, be, you will have a warped concept of love. You will mix up lust and love, and you won't understand the difference. And it'll create a desire in you that will never be satisfied. Ever. Ever. Do you know the road that pornography goes down? You get to a point, well, that's boring. i got to try something different. Well, that's boring. i got to try something different. That's boring, and you will find yourself going to a place you never expected to go. It's not worth it. Be careful. What do I do? Look at verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. 
For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. This is one of those scriptures. People always ask me, do you believe the word of God is literal? Do you take it literally? Of course. Well, what about this section? Should we pluck out our eyes? Should we cut off our arms? Should we cut off our hands? Does Jesus really telling us there to cut off our hand? Do you know what would happen if you really did that? Let's just say that my hand was causing me to sin. And I said, all right, I'm going to take it literally. And I go out to the shop and I fire up the bandsaw and whack, there's my hand's going to go off. After the paramedics came, after they bandaged it all up, after I got healed, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to sin with my other hand. And when that hand gets cut off, I'm going to sin with my eyes. When that hand gets cut off, I'm going to sin with my mind. You see, what he's doing here, he's just saying, listen, take drastic measures to get rid of the things that are causing you to fall. He's not saying literally go poke out your eye. He's not saying go poke out your, poke, cut your hand off. He's saying if there's something in your life that's causing you to sin, get rid of it. You need to deal with it drastically, immediately. Take serious measures to protect yourself from those things. That's what he's saying. Let me make it real simple. Really easy to understand. If your computer is causing you to sin, throw it away. Get rid of it if it's causing you a problem. Oh, no, no, you don't understand. I've got to work. Well, then put software on it that monitors what you're doing. Do some accountability type stuff. Make sure that there's protection there in place. If you're serious about staying pure and staying righteous. If you're reading a romance novel and it's causing you to wish that your husband was more like the guy in the novel, get rid of the book. If you watch the Hallmark Channel during Christmas time and go, oh, I wish I could be like that. Stop watching it. If Facebook causes you to lust, if it causes you to revisit old memories, if you find yourself searching for old boyfriends or old girlfriends or old things, get rid of it if you can't stop yourself. It's better to get rid of it. Well, no, I've got to keep in touch with my family. No, it's better to lose touch with your family and protect your relationship than to wonder what your old boyfriend or girlfriend is doing or the old crush that you had from high school. If someone in your workplace, your office, is causing you to stumble, get a transfer. Find a new job. Move to a different department. Take it seriously is what, it, what he's saying. Don't just go, oh, no, I can handle this. Get away from it. If your TV is causing you to stumble, you guys know this. What do we do? Get rid of it. If you can't turn it off, then get it out of the house is what he's saying. Take drastic measures to make sure that you don't stumble. We're touching on some controversial issues tonight, aren't we? Let's look as he addresses divorce, verse 31. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Oh, lots of people have trouble with this passage. We like to skip over this one. We, 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 we're going to talk a lot about divorce going forward in the book of Matthew, so we're not going to spend too much time on it tonight. But I want to give you a little background to this section. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, Moses wrote about a certificate of divorce. And it would be given to a woman if there was found 
any uncleanness, and that's the word that's used in Deuteronomy, any uncleanness in her. Well, the rabbis took this verse out of Deuteronomy, and they thought, well, what does uncleanness mean? Well, can, can you define uncleanness for us? Can you give us a, a clearer picture? What constituted genuine uncleanness? And as you can imagine, they didn't all agree. So they came up with two sides of, or two schools of thought, a conservative side and a liberal side. The conservative side said sexual immorality is the only uncleanness for which God says it's okay to grant a divorce. Well, the liberal group, they didn't focus on the uncleanness. They focused on the certificate. They believed that a man could issue his wife a certificate of divorce for just about any reason he wanted to. If he didn't like the way she cooked, you're out of here. If he didn't like the way she cleaned, you're out of here. If he didn't like the way she looked that day, you're out of here. If you want to trade her in a new model, you're out of here. As long as you issue a certificate of divorce. They didn't focus on the reason. They focused on the issuing of the certificate. So as long as I issue a certificate of divorce, it's okay. You're out of here. But in this passage, Jesus gives us the already obvious definition of uncleanness. He made it clear. Jesus said, whoever divorces his wife for any reason, any reason, except sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. Not only did Jesus define the word, he puts the responsibility back upon the divorcing husband or perhaps the divorcing wife in today's culture because back then a wife couldn't divorce her husband. There was no option. If you divorced your wife for any reason besides sexual immorality, you, the husband, are causing her to commit adultery. But how is that possible? Why is it my fault? Well, the Lord hates divorce and does not recognize divorce except for a few specific incidences. If you divorce your wife or your husband and they get remarried, which is probably what's going to happen. It happens in our culture, too. It happened in their culture as well. A woman would get divorced. She'd be given a certificate of divorce. And what's she going to do? She's probably going to go get remarried. Same thing that happens in our culture. Jesus is saying, God's not recognizing the divorce. He's seeing them as still being together. You've caused them commit by, to commit adultery by, by divorcing them in the first place. In other words, let me put it to you this way. It's possible to have a divorce that is recognized by the state that you live in, but it may not be recognized by the Lord. It may not be recognized by God. Well, wait a minute, Rob. What if I've been divorced for a reason? What, hold on a second. What if I've been divorced for a reason that is not recognized by God? Have I committed adultery? Well, if you get remarried, yeah. That's what the Bible's saying. It, you certainly have. It, it makes it very clear. God takes marriage seriously between one man and one woman, and it's for life. Remember the vows you took before you got married? How long was what, did it? Was there an expiration date on your marriage license? Some people think there should be. But no, there's not. It's for life. Till death do we part. But if you've done that, can you still be forgiven? Yes. The blood of Christ can cover the sin. That's not the issue. What if I've been divorced and remarried? Then what do I do? Stay married. God still hates divorce, even if it's your second or your third or your fourth one. Stay married. Once you're remarried, don't get divorced. Again, I believe the blood of Christ is sufficient to cover your sins, but the fact still remains God hates divorce. Have you ever considered why he hates divorce? Do you think it was just because he didn't want us to have choices? He didn't want us to have starter marriages. He didn't want us to, well, we're going to try this one out if it doesn't really work. You ever consider why he hates it? 
Why would God hate divorce? It, it, we're, we're adults. Let us make our own choices. You know, God understands the pain that goes along with divorce. God understands the hurt that goes along with divorce. God understands the children that have to bear the, the divorce of two parents. God understands the moving off from weekends and holidays. God understands the trading off all the things that go along with divorce. God understands how much it hurts his people, how much it hurts his, the children, how much it hurts the husband and the wife. And, and you bring other husbands and other wives and you bring remarriages. And you, what, do you, what do you end up with as a mess? When I go to mom's house, I can do this. When I go to dad's house, I, can, I have to do that. You end up with no continuity within the marriage. So, Rob, what are you saying? Is, if I've gotten married and divorced, is it adulterous? Yes, it is. But that's why we need a Savior. It is, according to the Scriptures. And you go, I don't like that. <laughs> that's why you, that, it's our sin that brings us to the place of salvation where we realize, I need forgiveness. Divorce is not something God can't forgive you from. It's not a, the unpardonable sin. It's not, it doesn't work that way. But yes, it's, it's there. It's clear in the scriptures. It brings a lot of hurt to a lot of families. And how would it be? And, there are, and let me just say there are reasons for divorce. And we're not going to go over them tonight. We'll cover them in later chapters. But how would it be if someone, if, if, if a believer, when I talk to a believer who's contemplating getting divorced, I always say, are you willing to go through the rest of your life without getting married again? Can you do that? Or is the one that you have, can you make it work? Because oftentimes, you know what's leading to the divorce? They're looking over the fence. Oh, the grass is greener. Oh, if I only had a woman or a man that would meet my needs. Oh, if I only had a woman or a man that would talk to me like the guy at work talks to me or the girl at work talks to me. Oh, if I only had, they begin to look over the fence at that. And that brings them to the place, well, this one's not working so good. What if I didn't have, what if that wasn't an option? What if you really say as a Christian, and I know, I know men and women that have done this, who have said, you know what, for whatever reason I've got divorced, I'm not getting remarried. It's not my plan, it's not my future, I'm not doing it. I'm going to live the rest of my life as a single person in hopes that the Lord will reunite the marriage. You see, this becomes a very touchy subject, especially in our culture, because there's been a lot of people that have been divorced, and many of you sitting out there are part of this. But please don't think for a moment two things. Number one, there are reasons that God allows divorce and remarriage. And number two, if you have been divorced or remarried, you don't throw in the towel. You keep living for the Lord. He wants you to stay where you're at and start serving him right where you're at. Make your marriage work. Work together. Let the Lord come in and fix it and work it. We can't go back and change mistakes that we've made, but we can keep ourselves from making future mistakes. That's what he's talking about. Now let's look at verse 33 as he goes into oaths. We'll talk more about divorce in the coming up in Matthew. He says in verse 33, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. In that culture, the Pharisees had developed a system where they could swear by some things and it was a binding promise. But they could also swear by other things and that didn't really count as a binding promise. Why would they want to do that? They could deceive somebody. 
They could, I swear by the Christmas tree that I'll be there tomorrow. You swore, yeah, but I swore by the Christmas tree. That doesn't really count. Well, I didn't know it didn't really count. Well, it's too bad. You didn't understand our laws. That's your fault. It was a deceptive thing. They, they, they could swear by certain things, and they had to do it. And they could swear by other things, and it didn't really matter. I swore by this, or I swore by that. Well, people do this today, don't we? People say that. Have you, have you, haven't you heard that? People, what do they say? I swear to God. Now, as, as a police officer, as a former police officer, I heard that all the time. I didn't do it. I swear. I swear. They swear by everything. I, I'll swear on a stack of Bibles. Why do you need a stack of Bibles? Just bring one out. What difference is that? What, what, what can I do if you're lying? There's, there's no punishment there. I swear my mother's grave. You heard that one? She's already dead. What do you think you're going to do? Change where she's at? What difference does it make? If you're a person of your word, you'll never need to swear. You won't need to swear. Your yes will be yes. Your no will be no. You won't need to convince anybody of your truthfulness. They will just know that when you say something, you're going to do it. When you say you'll be somewhere, you're going to be there. If you say you're not going to do something, it means you can't do it. I'll tell you one of the things that drives me nuts. I've been talking to somebody, carrying on a conversation, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes, and they make this comment. They say, can I be honest with you? I want to say no and leave. No, it's too late. We've been, we just wasted 15 minutes of my time. Now you want to be honest? Or, let, me, let me be honest with you. What, what have we been doing all this time? You've been lying. You've, how much of what you told me was true before and how much of it was a lie? Let me get it right. You see, our yeses need to be yes and our noes need to be no. When you say you're going to do something, be a man or a woman of your word. The only reason to swear is when you've lied so many times before that you go, no, this time I swear I'm telling the truth. Don't do it. You don't need to do it. Be, who, be truthful. Be who you are and it won't matter. Look at verse 38. You've heard it said, it was, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Ooh, things get a little interesting here. You see, the Mosaic law did teach an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's in Exodus chapter 21. That's what it spoke of. But here's what happened. Over time, the religious teachers, they moved, they changed, they took this command out of its proper elements. They twisted it to make it fit what they wanted it to, and they didn't fully make it what it was supposed to mean. This command was designed to limit, it was supposed to limit the retribution so the punishment wasn't greater than the offense. In other words, somebody does something to you. Yes, there's a punishment, but the punishment is going to be limited. Whatever they've done to you, you can't do more to that to them. It's, it's, it can only, you, you know, they, they've hurt you, they've taken from you. Someone stole a dollar, you can't make them pay you a million. You know, it, it's, it's going to be limited. It's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You see, they put the wrong element, and they made, an obliga they made it an obligation. If someone does something to you, then you have to do this to them. That's not what it was designed for. It was designed to limit the punishment, not to be any greater than the offense, but they made it a personal. If someone hurts you or wrongs you, then you have the right to hurt them back. 
you have to wrong them back. That's not what it's saying. That's not what it was meant for. Verse 39 says, We're, we are not to resist an evil person. The word evil means to be morally corrupt. We're not to resist a morally corrupt person. The word resist means to set yourself against, to resist by actively opposing pressure or power. We are not to set ourselves against evil people or morally corrupt people. Why? The Lord's going to take care of that. Let the Lord handle that problem. It's not your job. We need to focus on the things of God. This is not to say we never fight for truth or for evil. Jesus certainly publicly opposed evil corruption when he overturned the money changers table in the temple twice. He did that. But that's not what defined his life or his ministry. That's not what he was known for. You see, sometimes we become about what we're against and not what we're for. Jesus overturned the money changers table twice, two different occasions, but that was not who he was. That was he was fighting for what was right. And he talks about my father's house would be a house of prayer. Too often we're focused on what we're against and nobody knows what we're for. Too many churches spend too much time preaching what they don't believe and not what they do believe. They preach whatever, how everyone else is wrong rather than teaching the truth, rather than teaching what they believe. You see, it's not, a, it's not about who cares what you don't believe. Tell me what you believe. Tell me where, you're, tell me where the truth lies. Tell us what you believe. Tell us why you believe it. And to illustrate this principle, Jesus says in verse, at the end of verse 39, he says, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. I don't like that. I think if somebody slaps you, I like the eye for the eye thing. I think you ought to be able to slap them back. It's not what the Bible says, is it? You know how hard that is? As a man, you know how hard it is if someone slaps you not to deck them? You ever been in a situation where somebody slapped you? I have once. One time I had somebody slap me. I hit him. Felt terrible about it. Got in trouble, got suspended from school and everything else. Jesus is not saying that as Christians we can't defend ourselves. He's not saying we have to sit there and stand and take a beating. A slap in the face is an insult. Does it hurt? Your pride. If I was to smack somebody in the face, would I, would I seriously hurt them? I'm going to hurt their pride more than anything. Because it's, 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 it's a smack. It's a, it's a slap. It's, it's an insult to somebody. He's not saying we have to sit there and let somebody punch us, and then we turn to the other's cheek and let them, let them beat us to a bloody pulp. If someone insults you, he's saying don't retaliate. Don't retaliate. It's an insult. One commentator explained it this way. He said, it is wrong to think Jesus means that there is no place for punishment or retribution in society. Jesus here speaks to personal relationships and not to the proper function of government in restraining evil. I must turn my cheek when I am personally insulted, but the government has the responsibility to restrain the evil man from physical assault. See, it's not that we can't defend ourselves. And he further makes the point in verse 40, he's, the idea is let him do the work. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. The tunic was the inner garment close to the skin. The cloak was the outer garment. Under the law of Moses, the cloak, the outer garment could not be taken from someone. And Jesus said, if they want it, if they're going to sue you, if they're going to take you to court, just give it to them. Just give it to them. If that's if that, if that big of a deal, just give it up. He's not saying don't ever go to court here. He's not saying that at all. I think many believers need to work things out between themselves. But sometimes when someone doesn't recognize the church 
as an authority or the people of the church in authority, there's no option but to go to court. That, that happens sometimes. If you're having a dispute with someone who's not a Christian, how do you appeal to the word of God? They don't believe it. So you have to go to the courthouse. You have to go to those things. Look what he says in verse 41. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. This doesn't make much sense to us, but let me explain it to you. At that time, Judea was under Roman military occupation. Under their military law, any Roman soldier could command a Jew to carry his soldier's pack for one mile. So he could walk up to you, lay his sword on your shoulder, and say, pick up my pack, and you were obligated to do it for one mile. At the end of one mile, you had the right to put the pack down. What happens if I didn't pick up the pack? Then he could kill you. You, you, you didn't have an option. There, there was no, well, I want to go to court. No, there was no choices back then like that. So for one mile, you had to carry the pack. What does Jesus say? He says, go beyond the one mile required by law and give another mile. Don't just go one, go two. Give another mile out of the free choice of love. At the one mile point, the Jewish person could say, it's my right to quit. Here's your stupid pack. Carry it yourself the rest of the way. I'm done. However, Jesus says, you have the option to voluntarily keep going. Why don't you keep going? You see, when you choose to exercise love and do more than what is required of you, you open up the door for ministry. You transform an act of manipulation into an act of love. The soldier wanted to manipulate and use the law to make the man carry the pack, and the man says, I'll carry it too. How else can I help? You want me to go another mile? Why would you do that? Let me explain to you. Let me talk to you. Let me tell you why I would do it. Because I serve the Lord Jesus Christ, and he told us that we should carry it as long as we can or as long as we need to. Who's this Jesus that you serve? You see, it opens a door for ministry. You can take an act of manipulation, add a little bit of love to it, and all of a sudden you have a ministry taking place. It works that way. But so often we're focused on the minimum. What's my right? Choose to give up your right once in a while and see where it leads you. You don't always have to stand on your right. Yes, you might have a right, but sometimes you need to give that right up. Right up. We have the right of free speech in our, in our country, but sometimes we need to be quiet. That's my right. Yeah, it's your right, but it'd be better off if you just be quiet for a little while. You see, you can take that act of manipulation, add a little bit of love to it, and all of a sudden ministry breaks out. Why would you? What was being forced now is being done voluntarily. Why would you do that? When people say why, would you do something? That opens the door for you to tell them all about the motivating, leading factor in your life, Jesus Christ. Why did you do that? Why would you act that way? Why would you say that? Why would you not retaliate against someone who just insulted you at work? Because I served the Lord Jesus Christ and he told me not to. What do you mean? You should retaliate. They slapped you, hit them. No, I'm not going to. No, I'm, I'm not going to do that. You see, when we choose to exercise love and do more than is required, we transform that act of manipulation. We, act, we transform it into the act of love, and it becomes an opportunity to minister. Look at verse 42. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. If you need to borrow something I have, you're welcome to it. I've lent out a lot of things over the years, and sometimes they come back broken. Sometimes they don't come back at all, and sometimes they come back in better shape than they went out. If you borrow something, at least bring it back in the same shape from somebody. 
If you have something, be willing to lend it out if you need to, if someone needs it. I've learned the hard way. I don't lend money. Won't lend you a dollar. Won't give you, okay, I need a loan. I don't lend money. If someone asks me to borrow money, the answer is no. But if I have the money and I believe the Lord wants me to, wants them to have it, I will give it to them. I will give it to them freely. Well, what if they want to pay it back? That's up to them. In my heart, I'm making a transaction where I'm giving it to them. Do you know why I've learned that the hard way? Because I've let people borrow money before. And you know what end up happens? The friendship ends up being severed because of $20 or $50 or $100. They can't come around. They can't come to church. They can't do this. Why? Because they can't pay me back. Now they feel guilty. Now they feel embarrassed. I don't want that to ever happen. I don't lend money all over 50 bucks somebody. You know what else happens? It affects me negatively. If I expect to be paid back, what happens when they can't pay it back? And I start looking at them. Hey, why aren't you paying back your loan? What's wrong with you? And I, I, I carry a burden in my heart for it. And then I watch over, oh, you got a job now. Oh, you just bought a new car. Oh, you're buying this. How, what about the loan that you forgot about that you owed me five years ago? I become burdened by it that way. It doesn't work for me. I'll be glad to give it if the Lord feels it, if I believe the Lord wants you to have it, but I will not loan it for any reason. Let's look at verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. This doesn't come natural. This is not something we even like to read. Jesus says, bless them, do good to them and pray for them. For your enemies, do you, know, do you realize that's what love looks like? Blessing somebody, doing good to them, and praying for them? Oh, it's easy to love those people we like. Oh, it's so easy. Oh, yeah, they love me. I love them. It's great. But what about your enemies? What about the ones who are spitefully using you? What about the ones who are persecuting you? Most of us have never experienced per true persecution. What about those ones who are taking advantage of you? What about those ones who are talking behind your back? What about the ones who are gossiping? What about the ones who are spreading untruths about you? Oh, it doesn't come natural. It's easy to love those who love us and who are doing exactly what we want. But it's difficult to those who aren't listening to our advice, those who aren't doing what we want, those who are persecuting us, those who are coming against us. Yet Jesus says, love them. Why should we do such a thing? Look at verse 45 that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be Perfect. That word's mature or not lacking moral quality. You shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. In other words, he said, even the tax collectors love those people that love them. Even they like the people that like them. It's easy to talk to those people who you like. But what about those people that you don't like? Oh, I just avoid them. I just don't talk to them. I, I don't talk to people I don't like. Have you ever met anybody you didn't like? You ever met anybody where the minute you meet them, you just... I just don't like that person. What do you do? 
I talk about them. I tell my friends I don't like them. I stay away from them. I get away. No, 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 no. This is where the Lord says, no, I want you to bless them. I want you to pray for them. I want, I want you to make friends with them. I want you to go talk to them. I want you to try to get past whatever it is that you don't like about them. Love them when it doesn't make sense. Love them when it goes against every bone in your body. That's what Jesus did. If you want to identify with Jesus and be one of his disciples, you must love this way. But you know what the problem is? It's unnatural. It's hard. It's so difficult. You can't do it on your own. You can't wake up tomorrow morning and I, as I, you know, here's what I know. As I said, you know that person that you don't really like? You go, yeah, I know, exactly. And you can probably tell me their first and last name. They're at work or they're here or they're there. I don't really like that person. You cannot wake up tomorrow morning and say, I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to start loving them. I'm just going to love them. You know, they're going to know it that you're fake. You can pretend, but it's going to be fake. Well, how do we do this? You can only do this with the power of the Holy Spirit in you. You can only do it with the Holy Spirit. He's the helper. He's the one that we need. You can't do it on your own. You need to begin to see people the way Jesus sees them. You can only do this with him. You can't just decide to be more loving. It doesn't work that way. Try it sometime. Look at your husband or your wife and say, tomorrow I'm going to be more loving. They're going to go, yeah, right. It, it just doesn't work. It has to happen. The Lord has to do the work in you. But what you can do is you can ask for it. You can say, Lord, would you help me to see people more like you? Lord, there's this person at work. And their name is, and, and I really don't like them. But I know your word says that I'm supposed to love them. I'm supposed to bless them. I'm supposed to pray for them. So would you bless them, Lord? Would you help them today accomplish and do a good job at work? Would you help their family? Whatever it is, as the Lord puts on your heart, pray for them. Would you help me make a, make a situation where you can talk to them? Make a situation where, Lord, make a situation where I can go spend time with them and, and share my hope in you with them. You see, we don't like to do that naturally. But that's what the Lord's calling us to do. You might be the most moral person that you know on the outside. Outside, it's all together. Boy, you look good. Good job. Good money. Working in your community. Helping others. Giving away lots of money. But what's going on on the inside? Where is your heart really at? Are you connected with the Lord? Or are you far from Him? Is there a struggle is there an emptiness? Are you mad at God for something? Is there something that you don't even want to, I don't even want to talk to him? You see these verses in Matthew, they expose our weaknesses. If you were to take this Sermon on the Mount and you say, that's the way I'm going to live my life, you would sadly fail. But we don't throw it out. That's what we strive for. But what this shows us is I can't do that. See, that's what the law is supposed to do. It's supposed to be a schoolmaster to show us that we need a savior. We're supposed to look at these requirements and go, ah, oh, I failed. And you know what happens as you progress in Christianity, when you first get saved, you get all this outward stuff you start to clean up. And you stop cussing, and you stop smoking, or you stop drinking, or you stop doing all these things on the outside. And the Lord says, I want to work on the inside. You know what you've done? You've put up the fence so no one can see what's going on on the inside. Or it says, I want to work on your heart. You see, you might not cuss anymore out loud, but I hear what you're thinking. And that's far worse than any cuss word. 
You might not gossip out loud, but I hear what's going on in your heart. You might not hate out loud. You might just roll your eyes instead of giving someone a piece of your mind. Lord says, I want to work on your heart. Maybe you've heard me say before, the closer I get to God, the more undone I realize I am. That's because he, he clean up the outside, but then it's the inside he starts working on. And he starts working on your thought life. Where's your thoughts going to? Where, where, where are you thinking about during the day? That, that, that's where the transformation happens. It's, yeah, I, I, okay, I've got my life under control, and no one else sees what I'm thinking. Now, please don't think I'm a serial killer. I'm not thinking about killing anybody or something like that. But what happens is you start to have thoughts, and the Lord convicts you and says, why are you thinking that way? That's my son. That's my daughter. How, do, how, do, how does a parent feel if someone attacks their son or daughter? Mad. Mama, don't, don't poke Mama Bear. Boy, she'll lash out. The Lord's the same way. You start thinking her about, their, about his kids. Man, why do they do that? Why do they say that? Why do they act in that way? Why won't they behave? The Lord says, that's my kids. Don't do that. Remember, in this section, Jesus is teaching them what the law really means. You see, they had taken the law and they transformed it. All right, you can't kill. You can't commit adultery. You can get divorced, just issue a certificate. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let me show you the heart of the law. And when you put it in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, all you see is failure in their lives. Just like you do in your life. If, they, if, you, can, if you had to, people say, I'm a good person. Bring them to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And say, you read that and tell me how good you are. You're an adulterer, you're a murderer. Doesn't, what else? That's it. Adultery, murder, that's it. Just do the first two. Well, not, that, that blows the good person. But if they don't understand who they really are, they're never going to see their need for a savior. You see, it's when we look at ourselves through this picture, through this lens, that we go, oh, Lord, I've fallen short. I can't do this, Lord. I can't make this. And he goes, I know. That's why I went to the cross. Because I want to help you. Not only will I not hold this against you, I'm going to help you achieve it. You believe on me, I'm going to come in, I'm going to reside inside your heart. Not only I'm not going to hold, these, hold you to the standard, but I'm going to help you achieve the standard in your life as you walk with me and as you mature with me. That's what I want. You can see there's people that say, well, I don't need God. I'm, I'm morally okay, I'm good, I, I don't need it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm better than everybody else in this room. It doesn't matter. Do you want to stand before the Lord on Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7? This is what I'm, have you, have you ever hated anybody? Yep, it's murder. You ever looked at a woman for lust? Yep, that's adultery. How many times? Really? You, you, you see the point? It, it's supposed to lead us to the place where we say, Lord, I need you. The Lord says, I'm so glad you realized I need, you needed a Savior. I want to come dwell inside of you, and I'm going to change you. I'll walk with you. I'll help you. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to come upon you, and you're going to overcome all those things. But if we never repent... If we never realize we need a Savior, we'll never see a reason to put our faith in Christ. There'd be no reason for it. If I didn't look at this as the standard and go, well, I, I'm a good, if the standard is being a good person, I don't need faith. I'll just be a good person. But who gets to define what good is? Who, who, who defines that word? What's good mean? I'm better than everybody else. Well, how do you really know? Oh, let's look into your heart. Let's see what's on the inside. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful thing we have when the Lord says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to create in you a new person. Old things have passed away. 
I'm going to take your sins. I'm going to put them as far from the east as to the west. What an amazing promise that is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as we look at these verses in Matthew chapter 5, just where we've gone so far in this sermon, Lord, we see difficulty. Lord, we see a standard that we can't live up to. Lord, we try. We want to. It's our desire. But yet we're always falling short with our words, hatred, lust in our hearts, not treating people the way that we should, not living life the way that we should, not loving our enemies, instead hating our enemies. Lord, these are all in contradiction to what you say. Lord, we need your help. We need you to do a work inside of us. And for that work to begin, we need to repent. We say, Lord, forgive me, for I cannot live up to this law. I cannot live up to this standard. At that very moment, you reside in us, and you begin to change us. Lord, may we never be people who become so arrogant, so to the point where we think we're, we're Christians and we're better than everybody else. May we realize we might look better on the outside, but may we always compare what's going on in our heart. See, that's the true comparison. The Pharisees cleaned up pretty good on the outside. And Jesus said to them that unless you're more righteous than the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he went on to explain to them their heart. And our heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, just like theirs was. But Lord, you made a way for us to have a new heart. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.